Chapter Two of Murder Takes the Veil by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Two. There were three cloister walks, one leading from either end of the long main building, which formed the front of the square. The west walk terminating at the house occupied by the contemplative sisters of the order. The east walk ending at the chapel the third, joining the contemplative's house in the chapel. Within the square was a garden colorful with late-blooming flowers. Crisp and Archer looked across the garden, saw the figure hastening to the chapel, and smiled. "'It would seem that Mother is in need of spiritual sustenance,' he murmured to Franz. "'We must have proved a trial to her. Your cough, no doubt.' Franz grinned wickedly. Ahead of them, Sister Osmond bustled unconscious of the fact that the participants in the specially conducted tour were lagging, and therefore missing most of her explanation of how the sisters had come north from New Orleans in 1769 to escape the attentions of Count Alexander O'Reilly, the Spanish butcher, and had remained to build the convent, much of it with their own hands. "'You may have noticed that our extracurricular activities are to be expressly limited,' Franz replied in a low voice. If we are to remain within this holy realm, we'll have to be, shall we say, circumspect. Let's do say it, said Archer. Sister Osmond turned to meet the bland gaze of the two who had, from all appearances, been listening earnestly. Certainly no one could deny their pioneer spirit, Crispin said, without allowing a second's pause. Yes, I believe that's a sad lack in our own time. There is nothing left to explore. Those early trailbreakers are to be envied, sister. Sister Osmond's manner became that of one whose dignity will not permit her to nose frivolity. St. Aurelian's, as you see, is built in the form of a square, she stated, as if those tons of stone must not be encouraged to jig around into any other pattern. Nodding toward the artistic tangle of angel trumpets, hibiscus, jasmine, and a crybaby tree, which wept tears of sap, she explained, This is the convent garden. The contemplative nuns of our order often work here. Their garb is like ours, and you will not know them from us, except that they will not speak. You must not think them unfriendly. They have taken a vow of silence. Crispin might well have said something flippant then, but in time to restrain himself he caught Sister Osmond's expression. She was looking across the garden to the contemplative's house, and in her eyes there was such longing that she was transformed. The older man was astonished, but Franz understood. Once he had very nearly gone down such a sun-arched walk, and opened such a door, himself. For Sister Osmond, that silent life would have represented no sacrifice, the rigor of it no service, because it would be what she loved. To meet the world at the convent door, instead of withdrawing from it, to maintain her amiability while making explanations, apologies, and evasions all day long, there lay the sacrifice in the service. Even now, when she might be with the sisters chanting vespers in the chapel, she must lead around two intruders who said things behind her back. Franz was moved by a sympathy that Crispin could never experience, and he said after an instant, Don't stay with us, sister. Show us where the guest house is and go to prayers. We'll find our way. The sister stirred with a wandering glance at Franz. So few ever understood, and to stumble upon this fellow feeling in anyone so worldly as the young man before her, was remarkable. She turned to lead the way out across the side lawn, her veil filling with the breeze, so that she bore on like a seasoned windjammer bound on an important mission. 
Franz endeavored to keep up with her, but Crispin lulled along, enjoying the first real view of convent grounds. Coming up from the main gates, he had been able to see only the imposing pale stone front of the convent, with the thickly matted foliage of the bayou, forming the west boundary, and the groves and orchards on the east. But from this side lawn the farm buildings were in view, back beyond the cloister, an efficient little village in themselves, and farther on were the pastures. The girls have done well, real well, Crispin muttered to himself. The guest house, settled snugly at the end of the east lawn where the orchard began, was much to his liking. Picturesque, without sacrificing comfort, he thought with approval. It was squat and gave the illusion of being small, but it was only an illusion. From the center of the roof rose a sturdy chimney, the outlet for several fireplaces, and over it two enormous pecans bent, dropping their nuts with gentle taps upon the shingles. Sister Osmond advanced no further than the flagstone walk. "'This house is yours for the school year, gentlemen,' she announced with her usual urbanity. "'Your meals will be served to you in a special dining room in the main building. Mr. Tolvertson knows. He will show you the way.' As with Mother Theodore, the mention of the artist alighted some inner fire, and Sister glowed for a moment before she came back to the matter at hand. "'You are welcome to attend all our exercises in the chapel. Tomorrow we have an outdoor mass in the cemetery. All Souls' Day, you know, and in the evening a procession to the village burying grounds, both lovely traditional observances. Now is there anything you wish?' With her polite protest ringing in her ears, Sister Osmond departed. A gray squirrel leaped from the roof in beautiful flight, and sped after her along the walk. "'Lovely traditional observances all take place among the dead,' Crispin remarked. "'Sounds like we hit the jackpot in gaiety this time. Well, this is our new home, my boy. Shall I carry you over the threshold?' Franz did not answer. Over the bayou the sun was setting in a carnival display of color, and against it the cypresses and live oaks were black. A heron flew up his legs trailing and wings slowly away. On the convent roof the pigeons told their last gossip of the day. The cowbells jangled as the herd, which was the pride of St. Aurelian's, near the pasture gate. But Franz's eyes were on Sister Osmond's figure silhouetted on its passage through the arches of the cloister walk. He waited until she was gone before he entered the house. Crispin was already standing in the middle of the spacious living room. If he had taken in the comfort of blazing fire, big chairs, radio, books, and the lack of clutter that appeals to a man, it had been at a glance, for his profound attention was centered upon the man asleep on the Davenport. The sleeper lay flat on his back, his sock feet cocked up on a pile of cushions, his hands clasped across his stomach, and he was snoring in deep, rich tones. Even lying flat, his roundness was apparent. His cheeks were ruddy, the smile wrinkles deep around his eyes. There was a portly plumpness under the old-fashioned vest crossed by the heavy gold watch chain. He was a typical uncle of the fairy tales, the sort to rise up, eyes a-twinkle, grizzled red-gray hair on end, and inform everyone that there was just time for a miracle before supper. "'So this is our Uncle Tor,' Crispin said softly. "'He looks more like a genial farmer than an exponent of the arts. I bet my typewriter, the old guy's a fake.' Franz was intrigued. How could he be? I mean, he came up from nothing, didn't he? I've heard his father was a fisherman, poor as a church mouse, lived in a houseboat on the bayous. You've got to have something on the ball to get started. Of course, after a good start, 
You can get away with murder. Archer grinned. Ain't it the truth? The sleeper gave a snort which startled even himself. His eyes flew open and came to rest upon the pair solemnly looking down on him. Immediately he sat up, ran his hands through his hair, so that he looked like a Viking heading into adventure, and bounced to his feet. "'Gentlemen, you must excuse me. I'm an old man. I'm not yet rested from my journey. Mr. Archer, what a pleasure to meet you, sir. And young Mr. Eric, well, well.' Torwardson's cheeks plumped into a smile that nearly closed his eyes. He shook hands, he brought out cigars, he showed off the good points of the guesthouse, as if he were the official host, and yet, in his manner, there was nothing effusive, no false cordiality. He liked people, all types and kinds of people, and the result was a warm-heartedness that overrode even Crispin Archer's cynicism. Back in the living room after a tour of the house, Archer bit the end of his cigar and grinned. I haven't smoked one of these in years, Tolwoltson. The artist was down on the floor hunting for his shoes. He sat back on his heels, chuckling delightedly. I buy a box of that particular brand whenever I need to remind myself that I'm a success. When Franz turned in astonishment, he nodded. Oh, yes, my boy. There are times without number when I wonder if Tolvoldsen, the artist, might not have been a better blacksmith. That's when I buy the cigars my father used to provide for the grandfathers and all the uncles on Christmas. And the nostalgic remoma brings back the realization that I've risen from the poverty of those days. I haven't done badly. Something has always come up like this. He indicated the whole situation of St. Aurelian's with a smile and a shrug. So you didn't come here with any high intentions of spreading art through an indifferent world? Franz asked. I came because I needed the job, Torwoodson said simply, and, having discovered his shoes, he sat where he was to put them on. I know nothing of the ups and downs of your profession, Mr. Eric, he resumed. Yours, Mr. Archer, I believe builds up a backlog for you, each new book adding to your income, while the previous publications continue to sell? Yes, but in my work it's quite different. I paint a picture, I sell it, and there you are. In order to sell again, I must paint again. So I am never finished, you see. It is what keeps me young. The statement had sounded in the beginning like a complaint, but ending as it did, it was confusing. In the days ahead, the two young men would come to expect the unusual from Uncle Tor, but not yet. Then you wouldn't be an artist if you had it to do over again, Mr. Torvaldson? Franz asked. The artist paused in the act of lacing one of his high-top shoes. I didn't intend to imply that, Franz. I am what God and the devil made me. Exactly, said Crispin, almost as though he had been waiting for such a declaration. Tor looked up without a trace of a smile. If I were a blacksmith, I would still be an artist, just as a cypress board laid in the floor is still cypress. And won't you call me Tor? It's born to too long a name. I've seen your masterpiece, Tor, Franz said abruptly. The old man laughed. Which one? But Franz was serious. The man walking alone along a woods road. You painted it in the north, I believe because the woods are of brilliant autumn colors. I sat for an hour once studying it, and I don't know why. The figure is quite unremarkable, walking away from you. There is even a blueness around him that nearly hides him. All the light is on the trees. I painted it in Normandy, Tor said. 
he finished tying his shoelaces in a neat bow and clasped his arms around his knees. Every man walks his road alone, Franz, often in the shadow, although there is brilliant light above. That's why my picture fascinated you. You saw that man as yourself. I have seen people glance at it in the museum and pass on by, only to return with a somewhat puzzled air and study it as you say you did. It became so common a thing that the procurator finally put a bench at the proper distance from the picture, and now the viewers can puzzle in comfort. Archer laughed and strolled into his bedroom to unpack. Some time later, he looked up to see Franz in the doorway. Chris, he's not a fake. Uncle Tor? Being an artist has little to do with it. Mother was right. It's the man that's great, not a lonely artist. His simplicity, honesty, his genuineness, those are what make him what he is, not his picture. Oh, said Crispin, I might argue several points there, my lad. Such as? Such as his description of himself as an old man. He's not, you know, only well past middle age. But his manner says, Be kind to me. I'm old. You must overlook any slight weaknesses or fancies I may have. And above all, protest that I'm not old. Oh, yes, indeedy. Franz scouted the sport shirt Crispin held, pumpkin orange painted with moss-green ducks. Are you going to wear that rig around here? Certainly. But getting back to the fatherly attitude, I believe I'll adopt it myself. Unless I subliminate my natural gifts, I'm afraid I'll have a dull time in these holy precincts. Tor admits he came here because he needs the job, Franz pursued. He was a lot more honest than we were. A rugged soul of vast integrity, said Crispin. Could be, but I bet he seldom spoils the effect by combing his hair. Laying the yellow shirt in a drawer of the highboy, he shot a sly glance at the frowning young man in the doorway. My reason for accepting Mother's bid is no secret, Franz. I like to be where I can work in peace and still be in close touch with people. These college kids are going to be people some day, and the ladies under the veils are unexpectedly individual. I'm delighted with the whole setup. By the way, did you come because you can use the pesos too? Franz grunted a monosyllable that could have been denial. Then, light-footed as the squirrel that had followed Sister Osmond, he was gone. A door shut hard down the hall. In the living room, the great Tovotzin began to play the piano very badly. End of chapter 2